Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Having funlessness with Jen Kirkman. Episode 337. What is this? Oh, I'm Jen Kirkman, comedian. You may know my Netflix specials, I'm Gonna Die Alone and I Feel Fine, and Just Keep Living. They are comedy specials. They were made after I went on the road for years and years and told the same jokes over and over, and then we put it on TV. And now, this is more raw. This is an honest conversation that I'm having, a one-sided conversation, if you were, where I talk about life and deep things and funny things and stupid things. It can be anything it wants to be. So sit back and enjoy. Turn off your, turn off your comedy mind and put on your random mind. If you're new, welcome. I also have a Patreon component to this podcast, which I will talk about later. I have a wonderful relationship with the people who listen to this show and they're they may feel free to send me emails, iseemfun at gmail.com. There used to be another email address for this podcast, a newer one. I, it, I don't check it. So just use iseemfun at gmail.com and send me ideas. What do you want me to talk about? What, what's on your mind? Do you want to just check in? I actually would love people to check in and tell me um, how they are enjoying their quarantine? Have they learned any life lessons? Are they doing any different fun things? And fun meaning fun for you. It doesn't have to be fun for everyone else. That was the whole conceit of this podcast, that everyone's fun is different. So let me know. I seem fun at gmail.com. I would love to read things from my listeners. I think it's an important part of the show so that everyone knows that we're all out there. So please do send me an email this week. That would be great. And what am I going to talk about today? I talk about the Beastie Boys documentary that I watched, how it brought me back as a Gen Xer to the pre-internet days. And then I'm going to talk about an epiphany that I've had about how I am approaching podcasting and my online presence in a totally different way than I approach the stage. And that's not working for me. I can't please everybody. I don't have to preface everything with, I know, blah, blah, blah. I'm I don't have to prove that I'm woke. I just have to be myself. And then, uh, so I'm going to talk about how that has influenced me after realizing that uh, after I gave my opinion on this whole people can't go to their graduations thing, (laughs) my opinion's controversial. I'll talk about that. And I'll talk about Watermelon Gate. That's right. I posted something about watermelons and people freaked out. And again, with my new attitude, these things are not going to happen anymore and they will affect me differently. I have, I have done a spiritual deep dive on how I must change my ways. 
So that's all this week is about. And you might think, well, why isn't all this one topic of the internet? And why don't she talk about anything else? Is she whining? No. I felt self-conscious about doing an episode that was just about the internet. But that's what this episode is. And at the end of this episode, I'll tell you what we're going to be talking about next week. So stay tuned, relax, go down the rabbit hole of a performer's brain, and uh, I guess we'll start the episode now. So I watched the Beastie Boys documentary that... I believe was on Apple TV. You know, I have all, you know, listen, I'm not going to brag. I have all of the streaming things. Your Hulus, your Thises, your whatever it is, I've got it. And so I don't even know anymore. I just take my remote and yell, Beastie Boys, into it. And the documentary pops up. So... I love the Beastie Boys. They're one of those bands. You have these bands that you realize you would never say they're one of your favorite bands, but you love all of the songs and you have all of their albums. And when you hear them, it does something to your DNA and your heart. And you go, oh, I feel like I'm this age again because I just got taken back because of the music. Do you, do you have those kind of bands? I, I would say The Cure, The Smiths, Nirvana, Whole, Public Enemy, those are those kind of bands for me. And I always forget that the Beastie Boys is one of them. I don't know why. Is there some kind of latent embarrassment? Does it not seem, does it seem too obvious or not cool enough? Or I don't know. I, I don't think it's anything conscious like that. But I just always forget um, how, much, how much I love them and, and how much they're, I don't know, just kind of what I like to listen to. So... I put on the documentary after screaming, Beastie Boys, into my remote control. Again, I'm, I'm going to say it, it was, uh, I'm going to say it was on um, Apple TV. And I was immediately taken back. So... As we know, MCA is no longer with us. Oh, my God. And now I'm like, wait, am I saying the wrong Beastie Boy? I don't believe that I am. But it's just my, it's just a little moment of don't say the wrong thing. But no, Adam Yoke, not with us anymore. So when, you know, when you're my age, mid-40s, it's weird when bands of your generation die, right? It's really going to rock the older people when Keith Richards dies. I know all the jokes. He's not going to. Actually, of all of the cheesy, everyday people humor jokes, one of my favorite memes and jokes that actually makes me laugh, and I'm a snobby comedian who doesn't laugh at anything, is when anyone is talking about the environment and leaving a better world for our kids, you know, because we'll all die. And one of you go, we've got to leave a better earth for Keith Richards because he's immortal. It's funny. It makes me laugh. So anyway. But it's weird when, when you're younger and someone in a band that you grew up with dies young. It feels weird. 
it just, no, you're supposed to be around and we're supposed to get old together. And no, no, no. And so when the two Beastie Boys came out, um, Mike D and, and Adam Horowitz, when they came out and you just saw two and not the third, it just hit me all over again. Ugh. And it makes you feel old, even though it doesn't mean we're old. Mike, Adam Yauk, Adam Yauk, why can't I say his name? Died young. Um, so it was an interesting documentary because it was a live stage show where they told stories and showed clips. And I, I really liked it that way instead of having to watch a, a typical documentary where it's talking heads pontificating about them. I like to see them tell their own story. And, you know, I always knew that the Beastie Boys license to ill was this juvenile, boyish, whatnot that wasn't really who they were. I always sort of knew that by the, you know, I was listening to License to Ill on my boom box thinking I was cool when I was in the sixth grade, when I was 12 years old at the public pool with my friend Meredith, we would walk around holding our boom box and we thought Brass Monkey was the greatest song. We had no idea what it was about. It didn't matter. It just had fun noises in it, right? And so we would walk around. <laughs> Imagine little me with a little boom box. Public pool time. <laughs> oh my God. So fun. You rich people don't know what you missed with public pools. Um, and our, my friend Meredith and I loved it. And my friend Shauna, dear friend of this day would go, Jesus Christ, I hate Brass Monkey. I don't know why she didn't like Brass Monkey. So now I wasn't a feminist yet or a knew anything. I didn't know. But there was, I swear to God, you guys, if you cut me open like a cantaloupe, I would have told you I, I, I understood that the lyrics to girls was ironic. To do the dishes, to clean up my room. I, I knew it was because I wouldn't have liked it otherwise. I wasn't exactly Gloria Steinem at age 12, but I wasn't uh, stupid. I, I, I had had experienced sexism from teachers who said stupid things like, girls, you're going to have to learn how to type because you're going to be secretaries. You know, little things. They call them microaggressions, little things, right? So I knew I, it wasn't like, oh, Jen, you just didn't. No, no, I knew. I knew when, when things were sexist. I just, it didn't, I don't know. I, I also, it, I, it's like this Sam Kinison joke where in the 80s, you had to be there. But the only, we had three channels and the commercials that ran every two seconds, the big issue of the day where the Ethiopians are starving. And so Sam Kinison made a joke. That was him screaming, why don't you go where the food is? You live in the desert. And it was <laughs> so horribly funny. And when I was little, I knew it wasn't funny because he was really yelling at people who <laughs> were in a fucking starvation and couldn't. I knew he wasn't really telling them to move. It's funny because it sounds so logical on paper. Yes, why don't they just go where the food is? We've got so many grocery stores here, three to a town. But that's just not how it is. And it's funny because the logic seems to make sense, but that's just not what the world is. And you laugh because it's a release. 
And something in me lo loved that joke as a kid, not because I thought, yeah, fuck those Ethiopians, but because I thought, <laughs> if only were that symbol. I just knew it wasn't offensive or from a, a mean place. I knew it wasn't. And so I always felt that way about the Beastie Boys. So, but once again, you can't control your audience. You don't know that everyone's not in on the joke. You know, and, and when they were, so the, the, the boys told their story of, of getting famous and they loved rap music. And I, I always forgot how tightly they were woven with Run DMC. And I love Run DMC. And I always feel so bad for Run DMC that they had to, like, they really had, they had to get so mixed up with white people just to get ahead. It was like Run DMC finally caught on when Aerosmith did Walk This Way with them. And did they ruin the song? I mean, I think they did. And I love Aerosmith. And I love the Walk This Way Run DMC Aerosmith version. If that's the only version that ever existed, I'd say, eh, not a bad song. But knowing that it's not, I'm like, it's not that great. So, and so the, the Beastie Boys opened for Run DMC on the road and, and whatever. So, but the Beastie Boys were talking about how Rick Rubin, the producer, and Russell Simmons, you know, were just saying you can do anything you want. What do you want to do on stage? And they're like, oh, I want to have a giant penis come out of the stage. And back then, I remember it being shocking. I'm a little kid, you know, I'm 12, and I hear that these Beastie Boys that I like went out on tour. And it, and it somehow gets back to me, again, probably the newspaper, and... What's interesting is when you grew up without the internet, let's say you're, let's say there was internet back then. And I saw on Twitter, all oh, the Beastie Boys had a giant penis on stage. Weirdly, in, in a very rare case, I think there would have been a little bit of um, nuance about it because you would get to see all the different opinions, like people with the smiling, crying, crying, laughing emoji, like that's so funny and ironic or gross or whatever. But Back then, we, we only had the newspaper, the arts and entertainment section. And so when something was published about what was going on, oh, the Beastie Boys have a giant penis coming out of the stage, it would seem so serious. Like, oh, are they bad people? Are they gross? Are they, like, dirty all the time? Like, what is, are they just sex maniacs? You know, it, it, I remember it being, like, weird. I don't like that. But I, it wasn't because I thought it was sexist. I just thought, like, What? Because I didn't really understand, you know, like the mind of a little boy. And, and weirdly, I feel like I do better understand that now. And so now, so then you go through your feminist phase, not that it's a phase, but I look back on everything with a critical eye and I'm in college and I'm like, the Beastie Boys were sexist and the penis on the stage was a act of aggression. And, you know, you go through that and then you kind of get into your 40s and you watch the Beastie Boys who are in their late 40s and 50s. Um, talk about it and you go, they're like, yeah, we were just like 18 and we were like dumb kids. And if you said, how funny would it be to put a penis on stage? You're like, oh, yeah, they're just kids, you know, in their phallic stage. And it's just not offensive. It's there are critical theories that could be written miles long about why it is. I get it. But you know what I mean? They meant no harm. Not that being offensive means you don't mean no harm. Blah, blah, blah. So it was really a joy to watch. And I remember when 
the song Sure Shot came out in the 90s. So I liked the Beastie Boys. And I remember the song Sure Shot came out in the 90s. And that's where MCA sings, um, I want to say a little something. That's all I'm going to do. This disrespect to women has got to be through to all the mothers and the sisters and the wives and friends. I want to offer my love and respect to the end. Um, and that was like seen as their little mea culpa to, you know, what happened to them and who they be. Which part is it? Okay, here it is. Now, I remember back then hearing that and knowing, this is 1994, knowing, I think they're talking about licensed ill and who they used to be. You know, not everything was such a big deal and a scandal. It was just like these subtle messages and songs. You go, oh, yeah. Because I was a riot girl by this point, 1994, and, and Adam Horowitz married Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill, like Earth's biggest feminist. She has a song called White Boy that's, <laughs> you know, if you don't know Kathleen Hanna, I'll play the, a few minutes of this song, and you have to relax when you hear the lyrics. You hate men. It's, it's, it's punk. It's, it's extreme. Um, I'll play your lyric to this song. I mean, that's, right? White boy, don't laugh, don't cry, just die. And then she says, I don't care if I'm alienating some of you, your whole fucking culture alienates me, right? So this is just like the inside deep dark thoughts out, punk. I saw them live. Oh, man, awesome. So she's married to a Beastie Boy. You see what I'm saying? I think the Beastie Boys are pretty good guys, you know? So it's like, so around that time, you know, the MCA, who was on his own journey, he was the spiritual one. He was the uh, George Harrison, if you will. Is, is coming in, guys, we want to do a song about a meditation and gratitude and the disrespect to women. Now, these days, that mea culpa would not be enough. To all the mothers and sisters and wives and friends, we're more than things you own. But they did say friends, which I like. That, that was actually very uh, ahead of their time in 1984 to say I respect women, not just because they're my mother or my sister, but my friend. And that was cool. So what I'm getting at, what I loved about the documentary is – they talked about how when they first started out, before they became the Beastie Boys, they had another punk band. Now, I, I don't know why I need to say this. I guess just because I'm a jerk, but I knew that already. I knew that. <laughs> I'm so cool. And their drummer was this woman named Kate. But they went away from the punk thing and started getting into rap. And so then they just sort of phased Kate out and they became these three boys. And they always felt kind of bad about it because they were making fun of the jocks. You know, they were not 
saying let's party and let's fuck all the girls. I'm sure they did party and fuck a lot of girls on their tour, but they, they their songs were jokes. And, and I think that's why I always liked them because I was always a punk kid too. And it's like, it's hard to explain, but you know it in your bones when you feel it and you see it and you hear it. And you know when it's irony and you know when it's not. And when people go, well, that's no excuse, irony. It's actually not an excuse. You either get it or you don't. And I was able to enjoy it because I thought, but they did that thing that always happens is when you satirize, you become the thing and then you attract those people. So that was their followers. Uh, we're the like jockey, we're going to party kind of dudes. And then they had a falling out with Rick and Russell. Now, I didn't know any of this part. And the Beastie Boys kept touring and kept touring on that same album. And, and they all just sort of drifted apart. And MCA went off on his own, and Ad Rock and Mike D were doing their own thing, and and uh, but they all came back together to make Paul's Boutique, which is one of my favorite. I think it's my favorite Beastie Boys album, and I did not know this because, again, in my little world of just I have every album of theirs, and every year that something new came out by the Beastie Boys, I was always so happy. I wasn't thinking about oh, is this popular and how's this being received on the charts? But I guess Paul's Boutique was a major bomb. Uh, and it came out in 1989, and it's their their best work. And and what I loved about it, watching the documentary, this is going on way longer than I thought. What I loved about it, watching the documentary was, again, I'm sorry to be this pre-internet person, but it really appealed to my Gen X side because I do these things on Instagram where I play music, and I love oldies. I hate even saying oldies because it's like, well, it's not oldies to my parents. It's just their generation of music. But, you know, my sisters were older than me, so they left their Zeppelin records behind, and they're you know, The Who and Pink Floyd. And then my parents had Elvis and Johnny Cash and 50s and 60s songs going in the kitchen on their radio. And I had no sense of what was past, present, or future. It just sounded like music to me. So I have this very eclectic taste in music that, that I wouldn't trade for the world. And I never really got into like, you know, I, I don't know, whatever. So whenever I play things, on my Instagram, people will comment, oh, that's that song from this movie, you know, some 80s movie. I'm like, no, that song is a song. And 30 years later, someone put it in a movie. It's not, I hate when people identify music that way. It makes me utterly mental. And so for me, when I was listening to, you know, Paul's Boutique, I was getting a kick out of it because I assumed that they were, that everybody listening could go, oh, this is Shadrach on Paul's Boutique. Oh, but that's a Sly and the Family Stone uh, riff. That's a sample from Sly and the Family Stone, right? Or you listen to the sounds of science. And you go, oh. And there's everything is sampled. And then you go, oh, my God. How did they get a Beatles riff? Where is it? That's the Beatles. Like, I I thought it was like samples were fun, wink and nod to everyone going, don't you know this song? Don't you know this song? And it, I realized not every kid was like me. So there were some people that were just not even getting the thrill of, of what it's like to listen to samples. And, and nowadays, I don't think people really know anything. 
So I was surprised to hear that album was a bomb. And then they had to start over. And then they started learning instruments. And they started playing small clubs of 300 people after having been hugely famous. I was like, wow, wow, wow. So it was really, really cool. And and then they talked about those years as those young boys. And, and they said they let themselves be led by these music producers. And they you know, lost sight of hanging out with their friends and their punk friends. And punks always included girls in their stuff. And, and it was cool. And uh, it was just a nice, like, yeah, that's who I always thought they were. And I'm glad they did this. And, oh, it was just great. But it was making me think about – then it was just, like, annoying. Dur- Ugh, I'm not even going to get into it. Forget it. I didn't like the credits with, like, the people in the audience talking, like, David Cross has to get in there and be funny. I get out of here, David Cross. <laughs> um, it's just me being jealous. But so I started thinking about what made me want to perform, and you know, I never just thought specifically about doing stand up. I just wanted to have joy and be free and have fun and. And I remember being at my friend's house, the, my, the little band I was in in high school called Seventeen with my friends Nick, Chris, and, and Matt. And I remember being at their house, and we put on Check Your Head for the first time, and I'll listen to it together on vinyl as a group of friends in a band. And just pure joy. And, and that's why I perform. And I got to say, you know, it's not even a pandemic thing, but part of performing now is – is giving away free content on the internet just to get people to come to your shows. And I don't know if that business model tracks. You know, I've been so grateful that I just kind of stopped looking at Twitter. I used to be in this frenzy of write a few jokes a day and give your opinions every day and do something every day and then people will keep you in mind and then that way when you advertise a show, they'll come to a show that it's too much, it's exhausting. And, and it's this thing that was made up. I, I don't know if that directly correlates. You know, a lot of people just, eventually you'll just over content them and they'll be like, well, why do I need to come to a show? And I think in this pandemic, having to only perform online is fine with me for now. Again, I don't need that much attention. And if I'm not in the mood to speak about something, if I'm not having fun with my words, then I don't need to perform. And, and stand-up was getting that way for me towards the end of the year. I needed to um, think about who I am and what I want to say. And, and whenever people say, I, want, I need to think about what I want to say, it sounds like they're trying to come up with something important. I don't mean that at all. You, even just what silly things are on my mind. Um, so, you know, I'm okay for now for, for having to do just this podcast as my creative outlet, but there are inherently problems with the internet coming from someone like myself who was not of the internet generation. I have a lot of ways that I wish it could be based on what performing live before the internet was like, and it's just not. It's two different things, but I have to plant my flag in the ground and say, this is who I am. These are the truths I want to speak And if you guys don't understand how irony works or jokes work, then I can't help you. And I think the conversations that Ricky Gervais and, what's his name, Dave Chappelle have, are not going far enough. 
they're always talking online how everyone gets triggered and everyone gets offended and they're going to double down and say their jokes. That's one part of the conversation, but that's not, to me, the most important part. The most important part to me is what's lost now online, and I don't know if it's because things delivered online don't, like maybe you need the environment of a theater or a comedy club for for people to understand. I've you know it's almost like getting on a ride at an amusement park. You, if you were walking down the street in real life, and you know, let's I'm I'm trying to think of a ride at Disney World, like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. There's this out of control cart that you're riding, and it's it's going all over the place. And there's a Wicked Witch with an apple. If you were walking down the street in an out of control cart just came barreling at you and put you in it, you would freak out. But when you go to Disney World, you buy a ticket and you walk in and you choose to sit in this weird out-of-control cart that's going to take you through a funhouse. And so I think it's harder on the internet, which some argue is not real life. I think it's more real life than ever because you're right in people's homes. And they may be half paying attention to you. They may be coming to you. They may be watching a video that you're doing after they've just had a fight one second ago with their boyfriend in the bathroom or their kid threw up or whatever. And they're in a they're in a mood. They haven't settled in. They click on a video and there's someone saying, you know, I don't think graduation's a big deal. And they're like, well, excuse me, I have something to say about that. Whereas at a comedy club, you come in, you buy your ticket, you wait in line, you sit down, you get some drinks, the warm-up act comes, you're, you're, you have settled in. Then the comedian comes out, does some very specific magic on you, where she or he gets you settled. Kind of like the pilot, like, and we're taking off on the blue sky at 30,000 feet. You know, we're doing that to you. And then we just come in with our point of view. We're like, I don't think graduation's a big deal. Why are these kids so upset? You're going to fucking laugh your head off, even if you don't agree, because you are in a state to receive, because you're not in real life. You are in the theater. It's magical. I'm <laughs> being Moira from Schitt's Creek. And I would argue that watching things on the internet is real life, and that's the problem. So before I go any further with what happened on the internet this week and why I need to plant my flag, take a stand, be myself. I'm going to let you know a great way to have a good time during quarantine, to settle in, buy your ticket, as they say, and, and go into a fantasy land. My Patreon is the fucking most fun thing. I'm just going to say it. You get way more bang for your buck than other Patreons. I have levels starting at $5, $10, 15 20 25 and $35. The $20 and above levels, you get some free merchandise. The other levels is all about the content. $5 a month, that's amazing. Like, that's amazing for me. It's amazing for you. You get four videos. You get the video feed of this very thing you're hearing. But I start the video a little early, so you get like a five-minute private chat with me. Then you get a 20-minute bonus episode every month. $10 level, same thing. Video, you get two 20-minute bonus episodes a month plus a one-hour episode a month. $15, 
three 20-minute bonus episodes, everything in the previous tiers. $20 and it goes from there. And I throw in surprise bonuses like stand-up sets that I've done on the road that nobody else gets to hear. And it's material that has not been on Netflix. I am not working at all during this pandemic. Uh, I guess I kind of wasn't thinking. I don't know. I, I guess I just thought somehow I'd be back on the road in the fall and the winter, even though I knew I wouldn't. But now the reality is hitting. I am, I am not going to be keeping my tour dates this year. And this is my only income. I'm also a TV writer, but nothing's in production right now. So I would love if you would join. It is the best way to support me. And you're actually getting something from it. So do that. I'm loving doing it. And, you know, with the video, you get to see my hair and parts of my home. <laughs> my hair. All right. So there you go. That's the ad for today. Patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jen Kirkman. And we'd love to have you. There's even a $3 level where you get no bonuses except you can leave comments in a, in a, in a universe that is friendly. Does that make sense? Okay. So here's what I was thinking of, and ugh, I, 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 I want to articulate it correctly. So I want to tell you my opinion on something, but I want to do it in the funny way, where it's actually I'm delivering a funny monologue to you. So I'm going to give all the prefacing up front, and then I'm never prefacing again. So here's how it goes. When you're doing comedy, when a person is doing comedy, the reason you may laugh is because that comic has a point of view. They have an opinion. Now, I hate when comics get too hard-nosed about things and they say, that's my opinion and I'm not changing it. And it doesn't seem like it's just their opinion for that bit on stage. It seems like it's their worldview. Does that make sense, the difference between the two? I don't want to watch a comic who I think actually doesn't treat people kindly off stage and might be racist or anti-Semitic or homophobic. I don't want to see that point of view that's really stuck in the mud. But when a comic talks about something that I think, gee, I don't think they're really thinking this through, but man, I'm amused by it. I go, oh, that's their point of view. And that's why it's funny because it's so true to them. And, and when something's really true to you, you can get worked up about it and you can perform it really well. And, and if you're an audience member, you can take what you want from that bit and leave the rest. Does that make sense? One of my favorite things, I'm going to go deep on you here. One of my favorite expressions, it comes from 12-step, uh, comes from Alcoholics Anonymous, but obviously uh, gets filtered through all other 12-step programs and is what will kill you is being terminally unique. So what that means is a lot of people who have a drinking problem, if they choose to use Alcoholics Anonymous, will go and they'll think, well, I'm not like that guy over there. I drink way more. I'm, I'm a tougher case. Or I'm not as bad as that person. So I could, I could probably leave and keep going. You think you're the only one that is suffering what you suffer. And there's two versions of that. There's the first version where you really just don't know any better because you're young and you haven't lived life. 
and you're depressed or you're masturbating alone in a sock and you have no idea all of this is normal. Then you get out in the world and you go, oh my God, that was just me. But then there's some people that cling to, no, it's just me. I can't be helped because then they don't have to try to get better. And it's a weird comfort. It's a fucked up comfort. Not getting better feels safe to them. So that might end up killing you if indeed uh, you're addicted to drugs or alcohol or anything that can eventually take you down a rabbit hole where you end up dead. So terminally unique. You're so unique, it's a terminal case. Right? I think when people watch comedy, they feel terminally unique. Something has happened in culture where there is a resentment at the performer that they've got the mic. Instead of, oh, I'm here to watch someone do, you know, I don't take the tools out of the doctor's hands and go, let me do this. And I think that there used to be an acceptance for people that didn't have the internet their whole lives of what performance is. It's you go and hear someone else's point of view and you can, and so what they tell the, the people who suffer in Alcoholics Anonymous from being terminally unique is look, take what you want and leave the rest. When, when, the, when the people are sharing their stories, if you get something out of it, if you get some inspiration out of it, take it. You don't go, well, I can't listen to that inspiration because that guy also, uh, you know, was a drunk driver and I don't respect that. You know what I mean? Like take what you need and leave the rest. And I say that with comedy, like take what you enjoy the comedian in that bit and leave the rest. Maybe not every bit of mine you like. I certainly don't of all comics. And I watch certain comics go, oh my God, I disagree with them. I would not want to be married to them or, you know, based on what I'm seeing or whatever, or, oh God, I wonder what our politics, if they would line up and we'd get in a fight in the car. But they're so delightful in their point of view that it actually reminds me of me in a way where I go, well, I don't think that thought, but I certainly think my own thoughts. And, and yeah, I get where he's coming from right now in the sense that he's going off about something. And so what the internet has done, it's not like everyone needs a voice, but people don't know how to watch something and be entertained. And so they want, there's this notion that what you didn't say as the performer means it's what you don't know. So if I'm making jokes about, I don't get why people get married. Like that's my point of view, let's say. And then people will actually write me private messages explaining why people get married. Now, do you think that that's any fun for the comedian who got into the business to get up on stage, get laughs and go home? And then when you tell people that, like, hey, it's not fun anymore because everyone's weighing in and explaining things to me I already knew. People go, oh, you don't want everyone to have a voice? No, not in a performance, I don't. And, and so I have to... You know, there's a neurosis for me that sets in, well, I have to check my direct messages because it could be people asking how they can sign up for the Patreon and I have to run my business. And so I'm going to have to work on that on the back end, uh, how to solve that problem. But what I need to start doing is just being myself a little bit more. A thing that brought you all to me in the first place. And, I, and you know, in my Netflix special, I wasn't worried about who I offended or what I didn't know or if I came off like I didn't know something and now it's like this big ego trip for all of us. And, and so here's what I've learned. Uh, that this is how best I can explain it to you. And for people with the video version, I'm sorry, I have to reheat my coffee. This is, this is how I can explain it to you. 
This is, to me, what makes great comedy. Let's say you have an Aunt Shirley, and she has a mansion, and you are the only one in the family who is going to get that mansion upon her death. Shirley's about 60 years old. You're 30. And every once in a while, the th- you love Aunt, Aunt Shirley. Oh, my God, is she fun. But the thought passes through your head sometime. Geez, if Shirley lives till 90, I'm going to be 60 when I get that house. I kind of want it when I'm 40. What if Shirley died at 70? Then I'd get the house at 40. I don't want her to die, but like, just saying if she died at 70, I'm going to have a fucking sweet house at 40. Are you going to say that out loud to people? You're not. But it's your private little gross thought where you're like, come on, aren't you? Now, so what the comedian will do is you take that thought that everyone's had, that you feel bad for thinking, and you don't explain to people that you feel bad for thinking it because it's understood. And there's a maturity to being an audience member that I don't think a lot of people have. And it's not a generational thing. It's just a type of person thing. The, the, a lot of audience members don't have the maturity to understand that it is assumed between all of us that we understand, hey, uh, I don't really want my Aunt Shirley to die, but we all think these terrible things. So <clears throat> the, what the comedian would do to make it funny is go, you know, I'm getting this house when my Aunt Shirley dies. She's 60 and the healthiest she's ever been. Just went for a checkup and the doctor said, I wouldn't be surprised if you lived to 110. And I'm sitting there going, that's great, Aunt Shirley. Now, so here I am at Christmas like, oh, uh, now I know that poinsettias are poisonous to cats. I wonder about people, right, Aunt Shirley? Like put it in your drink. You know, you do a whole bit about trying to poison Aunt Shirley naturally at Christmas so you can get that house. Like that's the bit. But you don't have to go, but guys, now how unfunny would it be? If, if the comedian takes you down that rabbit hole and gives you the respect of not having to glad hand you as the audience member, that's the, that's the part. The comedian gives you the respect to tell you, I know you're an adult who can handle this. Now imagine that comedian goes, guys, I just want to let you know I love my Aunt Shirley. She's really great. And you know, if I meant for that house, it's fine. And I am saving. Um, my, my husband and I are looking at starter homes. Like, that would not be funny anymore. Now it's not a comedy bit. I don't know what that is. And that's how I've started behaving online. I'm like trying to do a point of view style stand-up thing on my Instagram stories. And I'm like, but I know this and I can't do it anymore. It's exhausting me. And guess what? People still respond. I can't control and manage how people respond. People still get in my DMs and tell me I'm looking at things wrong because they don't understand that they're watching comedy because they're not in a comedy environment or they're just idiots. I I don't know. And what happens is when people DM me that, I get mad. And I sometimes, now I don't name call. That is a big no-no for me. That, you know, the way you would fight with a partner is the way I would fight online, which is not a fight, but I don't call names, but I will write. I asked you guys not to DM me this stuff. I'm not fucking stupid. So I did that this week and somebody said they're not going to listen to my Patreon anymore. So that's the thing is like, there's just this lack of maturity all around. Like, yeah, performers are humans. If you reach out to them, you might get bit. Um, I'm really a nice person. I'm a good person, but I'm an eternally frustrated and anxious person. And I work on that every day. 
I'm also a chill person who's like mostly going to be cool to you. But I don't kiss your ass to get your money. I don't pretend I'm someone else to get your money. Plenty of people already do that. You can pay them if you want and live in the fantasy. But the thing is, uh, people take things really personally. And I never out my fans or say their names or post pictures. And go, this person said this. Never. And yet the reactions are always like that I did do something like that. So this notion of having to tell a performer, I no longer support you because I had a personal interaction with you that I didn't like. You weren't that serious about their art anyway. And I know you could be like, like I met Johnny Rotten. He was a dick to me. Never loved him more after that. Never loved him more after that. So anyway, this is my point of view. Basically what happened, and then I'll do the bit. I was talking about this whole graduation thing, and I'll do the bit in a minute. It's not a bit, but I'll. And somebody said, you might not be sympathetic to these people who can't graduate because you're a white lady in your 40s. And I just couldn't take it anymore. Uh, and they explained to me that different uh, races, it's important for them, for the family genealogy. They never went to college. I get, I get, I understand that. That wasn't the bit I was doing, though. I wasn't doing a bit about why don't people, I'll tell you the bit in a minute. I am a 40-something white lady. I have blind spots, way less blind spots than most. What I don't say doesn't mean it's what I don't know. It means it doesn't serve the bit I'm doing. So when I talk about my experience as a white person, which is not inherently flawed because I am white, but when I talk about my experience as someone who didn't give a fuck about graduation, it's going to be funny to other people who relate or who go, oh, that's an interesting take on this. Yeah, you're right. Why are we getting all worked up about graduations? It's not because I don't care about the Mexican guy who was the first one in his family to graduate and his family's proud. I'm That's... Me not mentioning that that's a demographic is not me shitting on it. And and I can't handhold anymore throughout. So here's the bit. So anyway, so I'm not going to, I'm going to, all of that gunk I just said is so boring and gunky that I can't keep getting mired in it, you know? So it's no fun. I, I made this video about graduation. And instead of just going into it with a point of view, I did all these disclaimers and here's my opinion. I don't get why the fucking graduation. Now, when I say I don't get, I don't, I don't really not get it. I'm, it's just, oh God, it, it's, it's almost impossible for me to perform comedy without being in front of a live audience. Because I can hear how it sounds like someone is just talking and they don't get it and you need to explain it. But I'm like, I'm getting a little tired of the graduation victim thing. I can't graduate. Here's my deal. It's a ceremony. It's a piece of paper. Why are young people getting all excited about institutionalized fun, about institutions that keep them down and test them to death 
And, you know, I get the graduation is freedom, but you're free because school stopped. You don't need another fucking ceremony. I thought of my graduations growing up. I went to public school. My friends and I were like punky. We didn't want to wear the stupid robes. We loved graduation day because it was drama and we could all be together and we could cry. And I get that you're in a pandemic and you don't get that part of ritual with your friends. That is sad. I get it. But on the other hand, on the other hand, you're not missing much. It's basically the same thing you're doing now from your bedrooms. I'm telling you, it's someone giving some weird speech that doesn't apply to you, that is complete bullshit. It's like, work hard and you'll make it. You won't. And then it's, and I'm not saying President Obama is making 2020 speeches. Like, I graduated in 92. Do you think George Bush for the first was like, you know, it's been a hard year with the war. I'm going to make a speech to the graduates. Well, now I know we had a graduation ceremony and that's why he didn't have to. <laughs> Bill Clinton, like Kurt Cobain died. Let me do a graduation speech to the 2020. I'm just like, you guys are getting so much more than any other shitheads who graduated and not, their life didn't change because of it. I just never gave a fuck about graduation. And a lot of punk people wrote me in the DMs like, I have anxiety disorder. I didn't want to go to graduation or I had no friends. Or this guy was like, I'm a Mexican guy and all these white people think that because I'm Mexican, I'm supposed to be like shitting my pants with gratitude that I'm the first one in my family to graduate. But I was looking to the future and I didn't want to be around all those white people. So there's all different kinds of points of view, but I just keep getting hit up for videos that are like, my friend is really sad. Can you make him a video and cheer him up about graduation? I'm like, you're already on the wrong track in life. Your friend wants me for free to cheer them up with a video. Is that what you think life is? It's just like reaching out to people who do this for a living and telling them that they should make you a video for free. <laughs> oh man, you go back another year. You graduate next year. Graduate from my school of life. But I just... I remember college graduation. Oh my God, it was terrifying. And I went to a performing arts college. I went to Emerson and they had Susan something. She's a Susan. Oh God, she's an amazing historian and she's written gorgeous books, but it had nothing to do with our college. And I was like, this is so boring. I was like, can we get Henry Winkler up in here? He went to Emerson. Emerson didn't really have performing arts based commencement speakers because I feel like they were ashamed of it. And now that performing is like a viable job and cool and like corporate now, you know, now they allow people who used to perform to give the commencement address. But I was just like so hungover. And the minute I got that diploma in my hand, it was like, here come the debt. I just was in debt the minute that happened. And I was getting a waitressing job the next day. And I was like, why am I going to college again? Like, it was just funny to me that graduation, both of them just exacerbated my hatred of the situation. In high school, I had tons of friends. I was very well loved, blah, blah, blah. But I wasn't one of the jock people. And all the jocks that were like, trying to kill my friend who was gay, trying to kill my other friend who wore dresses, who was a guy uh, who wasn't gay, but just wanted to wear dresses, trying to kill my Jewish friends, like literally violent people. Like they were all graduating and one of them made the speech. And then there was this kid with a disability who was a friend of all of ours 
who literally was unable to move. He had this muscle disorder that froze him up. And the jocks used to slam the door in his face. And at graduation, they gave him a standing ovation. Oh, aren't you nice, you fucking pieces of shit that are going out into the real world to be more dicks to people. But we were actually this kid's friend. So I was just like, I don't want this pomp and circumstance. I don't want this corporate-run corporations. I don't want this bullshit. I'm looking to reality. And the reality is I want me and my friends to sit at fucking friendlies. And that's what the kids should be upset about is like, I can't be with my friends and bond with them. These brothers and sisters of mine, these makeshift families of mine, before we all go off to college, if indeed that's even allowed to happen. That graduation, that's, I feel like the parents are making this happen. Oh my God, the kids can't graduate. The kids are like, I don't fucking care about graduation. I'm going to be sitting there with a joint in my pocket, hungover or stoned or both. The ceremony, who cares? And Obama's like, I must come out of my retirement as president. I haven't spoken about anything else, but I must speak to the kids graduating. Oh, be quiet, everybody. Enough drama. So that's my opinion as a Gen Xer. I'm like, because I, I said to my mom, I go, would I be one of these people that's like bumming out that I can't go to a graduation ceremony? She goes, I think so. I don't know, actually. I don't know. And I go, I don't remember how I felt at 18. I don't remember. Oh, well. And that was my whole point. You're not going to remember anyway. You, 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 your body changes every five years. You get all new cells. Please. You're fine. Everybody's fine. You're about to go next level spiritually because you're being denied some human interaction and you're learning to live in a pandemic. You're going to fucking soar. You know, these doofuses I went to graduation with, oh, I clapped for the disabled kid that I used to beat the shit out of. Now I'm a good person. Here's my diploma. They're not learning anything about life. You're sitting there. You're in a pandemic. You're learning that your behavior affects everyone else. You know now not to go eat a bat in a wet mart. You know that now. Can't learn that in school. What do you need to gra- graduate from life? <laughs> Don't you know now? You know now about the world in a way that a lot of 18 year olds didn't. I'm sorry you had to go through it. But this has happened in every generation. 18 year olds shipped off to Vietnam. You know, listen. Imagine if I was a commencement speaker online. Ah, other 18 year olds were shipped off to Vietnam. I'm like smoking. People are like, what? Who is this weirdo? Who is this non-Vietnam vet woman smoking? Why is she smoking? Oh, you can't even smoke online anymore? Oh, I get it. So, but I was thinking, you know, this has really changed me, this, this, this pandy. Because I used to be so busy and... You know, I started to break, and I started to say it last year. I would, like, kind of react anytime someone would say, you're so busy, that's so good. It goes out of virtue to be busy. It's stupid. Life is supposed to, you're supposed to, um, one of my favorite spiritual quotes is, wear life like a loose garment. Life is supposed to be, life is tough, right? We got the pandemics. We got neo-Nazis. We got all kinds of bad shit out there. We are supposed to be these spiritual beings having a life experience. I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. Wear life like a loose garment. Not because life is easy, but because life is hard, right? You don't go, well, I would if it was easier. No, 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 no. So I'm trying to wear life like a loose garment. When I get back into the world, there'll be a difference between being busy and busy. 
know what I'm saying? The difference between, between being like, oh, all my employment is kind of happening at once. I've got to strategize, organize, prioritize. But I don't have to be a, str a stress case that then pays all this money to de-stress. Does that make sense? And I'm going to read an article that my acupuncturist wrote, and you're going to fucking love it. So I'm thinking about how I became one of those people who buys fruit cut up for $7. No wonder I don't own a home. Now, it wasn't a lot, but it was sometimes. Oh, I know. I'll bring this to work. Oh, I know. And it's like, there's a melon sitting right next to it that you could buy for less than half the price. Cut it up yourself. Put it in your Ziploc. Put it in the fridge. Take it to work. I can't do that. I don't have time. Well, you're not making the time. And maybe sometimes you really don't have that much time. But then you got to look at your life and go, I don't have time to cut up fruit. Am I the president? I'm not. Then I have time to cut up fruit. Especially, I don't have kids. I mean, come on, people. I've got time. When you work in TV, honestly, you do sometimes work 16-hour days. So truly, it doesn't feel like there's time. But if you prioritize and you say, okay, on my day off, even though I have to work and write on my day off, I'm going to get up 15 minutes earlier and cut the damn fruit because it's going to do something to my soul that's going to reinvigorate me instead of having convenience after convenience. So I didn't think it would be funny to write, I used to cut up fruit. I used to buy cut up fruit when there was a watermelon sitting right there. So I wrote a, what I call a point of view joke. And I found a cute picture of myself when I was little eating a watermelon. Now, that's actually the natural order of things, is I scrolled through my phone for a flashback Friday photo, and I went, oh, my God, I'm so cute. I'm eating a watermelon, and I look so happy. I'm five years old. It's 1978 or four years old. So I post on Instagram. This is what I wrote. I will show you my exact words so that you can't accuse me of rewriting history. I wrote, Back in the 70s, we bought whole watermelons and cut them. Wasn't, op wasn't an option to buy them in pre-cut form in plastic. And somehow we had the time. And we weren't even in quarantine. Hashtag flashback weekend. Now, I didn't say you people or you generation. I said we. We. I didn't go into I buy cut fruit. Not, it's not, it doesn't have the same panache style movement to it. Writing is a fucking art. So I said, so I thought it was funny. I, it was my way of saying what everyone's been saying, but I said it in more little poetic way. This fucking thing has really slowed me down and I'm enjoying things. Like I call things cooking that aren't even cooking. They're just preparing. I'm buying melons, cutting them up, balling them out. And you realize how much it's just nice. It just centers you for a minute, puts you back in your body, and you feel connected to what you're eating, and you're not wasting plastic, and you're not wasting money, and it just feels so pure. And food definitely is something that makes us happy because we binge on it, and we're addicted to it. But it used to make us happy in simpler times in healthy ways, like, oh, mom's cutting the watermelon. I can't wait to see how pink it is on the inside. Oh, my God, it's dripping. I smell it. Oh, take the seeds out. Oh, watermelon. And it's only this time of year. I mean, it, there was ritual. You can't spell spiritual without ritual. Isn't that great? It's one of my favorite things. I actually think I made it up, but I could be wrong. But um, rituals, 
get us in touch with our soul and our spirit. And to be a spiritual person doesn't mean it's a feeling you have, oh, I'm running through the mountains and I feel God in my soul. That's not spiritual. You know, spiritual is the humbling rituals that you do. If you get on your knees every morning and pray, that's spiritual. You may not feel it. You make a gratitude list, that's spiritual. You meditate. You know, it's doing the work. It's doing the ritual to say, nothing else I have to do is as important right now. And that's humility. That's humble. So people went nuts. Everybody in my comments. I just turned the comments off. I usually turn comments off on posts where guys are being creepy. If I'm showing a little side boob or something, which is really not a thing I do. I turned the comments off on a watermelon post. <laughs> People going, they still sell whole watermelons in grocery stores, you know, but you're so out of touch and rich, you haven't been to a grocery store. What are you talking about? What? What? Oh, we did this in the 90s too. Yes, so did I, the 90s. But I didn't have a picture of me eating a watermelon in the 90s. I had a picture of me eating a watermelon in the 70s. I give you that. We did cut up watermelons in the 90s. There wasn't packaged fruit then either. And the 90s was probably the last time we had a simpler time, which is why I talk about all the time. So I, I agree. You had them in the 90s as well. I was there. Then this long one. Why do you Gen X people always shit on millennials like this? You know, we... I have seen a real watermelon and we do take time to do things. And you think you're the only generation. And I was like, um, I didn't say anything about millennials. I said, we, and, um, even if I was shitting on a generation, which I wasn't, I could have been shitting on Gen Z or Gen X, but taking a post that in no way even has the word millennial or generation or young people in it personally is peak millennial. <laughs> you got to have a sense of humor about your generations. You do. Again, we're life like a loose garment, y'all. So I had to turn the post off because people don't have reading comprehension. And then someone I know, this guy that, that is a nice person, and I used to help him out a lot back in Boston, like if he you know, and, and he wrote this DM to me that was like, I used to think cut up fruit was pretty stupid too until I had this experience. I work with autistic people and they can't cut, uh, it wasn't autistic, sorry, it was something else. And, and they can't cut their own fruit. And so, but they want the experience of going to the grocery store and buying things and the satisfaction of coming home. So that's important for them. Well, yes, my post, good news is, wasn't fuck autistic people they should cut fruit. That wasn't the post. If it was, I'd see. But I was just saying, for me, I used to think I was too busy to cut fruit. That was the post. That was the intention. But as a writer, I don't feel like I should have to be so literal. And what that's what's bumming me out now about performing online, writing online. If it's not literal, now anything's open to interpretation, right? The Beatles song, um, Martha, My Dear, you think it's about a woman, it's about Paul's dog. So I hear that song as a love song. It's a love song to a dog. Open to interpretation. That's different than no one understanding things anymore because they have no comprehension of what a artistic flowery post or performance is as opposed to someone going, this is what I think and there's no nuance to it. Like, You've got to respect the performer that you're following and assume there's a backstory there, but they're trying to evoke a feeling. So they just wrote the bare minimum without going, I used to cut up fruit. Then I stopped and bought it in plastic. Now I cut it again. 
I mean, you can do that. You can go read, you know, some basic person's uh, fucking medium post if you want. But that's my new promise is I'm just being me with my point of view. You don't understand it and you're right to me. Enter at your own risk. And I'll probably stop reading direct messages anyway. That is the problem. I didn't get into this to interact. I got into this to entertain. You get the difference? <sighs> so let's end on an article that my acupuncturist wrote about wellness culture. It's really long. I'm only going to read select parts of it. But I was really in that same place. Oh, it's not letting me log in. Oh, forget it. I'm not going to read it because it's not letting me log in. Oh, no, here it is. Okay. He writes, should I play music behind it? I think I, I love this playing music behind things. You might be like, that's a little much, though. Fuck it. Fuck it. It's doing what I want now. Doing whatever I want now. Okay. My friend Russell writes, I used to work, but I don't anymore. I used to be an acupuncturist, but my job requires me to touch people all day in a sudden global airborne phlegm communicable virus with no top-down science-based strategy for management makes it a weird time to do that. For those with the privilege to consider this pandemic an opportunity for self-reflection, the, the collective experience seems to be, I'm itching for it to be over, but I'm nervous to go back. So much of this quarantine has been about recognizing how entrenched we are in the culture and economics of productivity, the unrelenting hustle of efficiency and profit in modern life. We have been forced to painfully confront exactly how much of our self-esteem and joy are generated by how busy we are, how much we get done, how hard we work, how many people we see, how many people see us, and how much money we make. Now, I'm all for making a lot of money. That's never going to change. <laughs> but I've never wanted to be this hustle bustle person. This is me talking now. You know? I want to do one thing, have a lot of people pay for it, and then kick back for a month or a year, walk around Europe, eat cheese. That whole thing of what's my legacy? Huh? That's why I've always really admired Seinfeld in a way. He did a show and he was like, oh, now I don't do the show. Now I do nothing. I do some stand-up, some comedians in cars, but this, wasn't this the point? To make money so I could do nothing? Who, life isn't about work. Work is about work. Making money is about work. But life, it's fucking life. Let's enjoy ourselves. And I've made it a point a long time ago that I don't have to be Seinfeld rich to take time off and enjoy my life. And I don't have to wait until the perfect circumstance to be happy because that's not how, it's actually, you got it backwards. So anyway, um, but it was always, this back to Russell's article, the sudden deceleration and capitalism vacuum really pulled the covers off our internalized expectation that every nanosecond of our lives must be endlessly productive, profitable, and self-improving, and without it, we are a fucking wreck. 
The basic requirement of optimization culture is that we must always work to be better. And just to keep up, we must tighten ourselves through the machinery of keeping up without relief. Optimization backs us into a corner where we either submit to its inhumane expectations of productivity and wreck ourselves doing it or fall out entirely, fail by the system's definition and be shamed for it. Uh, this is the conversation I want to have now, and wellness is a great place to start. I have long struggled with the tension that today's multi-billion dollar wellness industry from which I benefit collectively, the products and services that promise to improve the body, mind, and spirit, is largely a response to capitalism. The consumption of this loose umbrella we call wellness that includes everything from acupuncture services like mine to yoga in the park, the organic produce section of Whole Foods, Soul Cycle, Juice Cleanses, Ohi hats, CBD products, Instagram health coaches, matcha bars, tension tamer tea, all of it, I truly believe are worthwhile, but have been popularized mostly for their ability to offset the sting of optimization. Um, okay. We need adaptogens and antioxidants because we are so fucking tired and the air is disgusting. We need body work and cobra poses because our backs are wronged by sitting at desks for 10 hours after commuting for an hour and then twizzling our bodies into a fetal position for a night of anxiety sleep. We need herbs because we are dubious of the virtue of the pharmaceutical in industry. We need crystals because they remind us of a buoyant time before technology. We need our oat milk because God only knows what's wrong with dairy that no adult can really process it. We need meditation because we carry a microcomputer in our pockets all day. And then we bring it into our beds so we can do more work in our one place of rest. And then we wonder why we can't ever relax. Wellness is all the ways we push the rock back up the hill, knowing full well gravity is infinitely stronger and will topple it right back. It's the Band-Aid. We have long needed to reconcile the truth that the wellness industry is a tool of capitalism to excuse and bypass the flaws, to create a workforce that is just well enough to go back to overextending and overexerting itself for employees that are likely the reason they are ill to begin with. The pandemic pulled the curtain on this uh, back because we all realized that if you suddenly remove the capitalism, much of wellness went with it. Without the pressure to optimize the lunch break, the need to squeeze in scrolling time or the income, our needs changed. Without the commute, without the desk, and with the possibility of getting a flu that indiscriminately kills otherwise healthy young people, wellness sure feels different. Which is not to say it's all charlotte and snake oil or bourgeoisie self-gratification. I've been at acupuncturist for 15 years. I've seen it transform people's lives, open them up, and restore their will to live. However, that part of the conversation that feels pressing in light of people fighting nurses in the streets so they can risk their lives to go back to minimum wage jobs is acknowledging that if we are all band-aiding the suffering, the suffering associated with optimization culture, aren't we just coddling and codifying that culture? Are we healers? any better than the machinery of late-stage capitalism if we are just loosely mending the effects of the machinery so people can stay in the machinery? There is no shortage of critique of the current state of wellness from it's becoming too expensive and tied to privilege, it's too diagnosis-centric, it's a full-time job, it's too populated by Caucasians overusing the word namaste. But the one I always see at the root is the simple fact that tired and wired offers no way out. We fill the gap to make tired and wired just palatable enough. This entire wellness business is built as a temporary stopgap in the no-win situation of a culture that has convinced us that who we are is synonymous with how, we, uh, how much we achieve, and we are not going to get out of that alive. 
I do not wish to return to the fixing the pace of standard survival to the speed of light. I do not wish to patch people back together so they feel better about being exploited. I, do, I don't wish to treat my patients' headaches, insomnia, gut health, and pain, knowing they are worsened, if not only entirely caused by stress, only to release them back into a world that wants them hooked on stress. Um, and that's just a longer article, but I just like that notion that we are so, I, I was thinking when, when I do interviews with newspapers and magazines, their last question is always, so what's next? It's such a fuck you, what's next? I don't know what next is. That's not how art works. I'm not a machine. How about what's now? You're interviewing me because I just had a book come out or a special. Now is the part of the artistic process where I reap the benefits of the work I, uh, I sewed. What's next? Who cares? We're talking about now. What's now? Why do you want to jump out of this moment to talk about a future one that doesn't exist? Why do you want to hear about half-baked ideas instead of ruminating in the thing I created that has a lot of conversation points? What's next? Who cares? What if I said nothing's next? Then where does the conversation go? Okay, bye. When you, when you have those feelings of it's the little things in life that make you happy, they're supposed to be the big things. Well, I don't have any other thoughts. I, I actually just felt the last thought go out of my head. And if you have the video version, I think you can actually see it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me in my journey of committing to my own belief that my audience does not dictate how I perform, but I dictate. And the right people will fall away. The, and, and the wrong people will fall away and the right people will stay on board and come on board. And I am the only one who can destroy my business by trying to respond to the internet culture and doing it that way. And this is not a fuck the haters. I don't believe in just shutting whole things down and saying, fuck this, fuck that, fuck that. It's a deeper conversation and I hope I... I hope I actually achieved that deeper conversation today. Until next week, and next week will be fun. I get stories about my parents nude on their wedding anniversary this week, lip syncing, buying an ice cream cake. Oh, you can't even believe it. Until next week, have fun.